Whether you're lifting weights or running or doing pretty much anything, the form is the most important thing, right? What if that is completely wrong? What if form is perhaps the least important thing? Well, I don't know. We're going to talk about that and take a look at that in today's episode of the Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body, usually starting feet first, because you know those things are your foundation. We're going to break down the propaganda, the mythology, sometimes the outright lies that you've been told about what it takes to run or walk or hike or do yoga or CrossFit or just to even hang out with friends sometimes. And and do that enjoyably and effectively and efficiently. And did I mention enjoyably? Trick question. I know I did. Because look, if you're not having fun, do something different until you are. Why waste your time otherwise? I'm Stephen Sashin from ZeroShoes.com, your host of the Movement Movement Podcast. And we call it that because we are creating a movement. I'll talk about how you do that. It doesn't take any time, effort, or money uh, about natural movement. We're helping people rediscover that natural movement, doing what your body's supposed to do, what it's built to do, is like the obvious healthy best choice the way we currently think of natural food. The movement part that involves you, it's really simple. Go to our website, www.jointhemovementmovement.com. You'll find all the ways that you can interact with us, all the previous episodes of the podcast, where you can find the podcast, where you can find us online on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube, et cetera, et cetera. All you have to do is um, spread the word. Just share it if you find this interesting. In short, if you want to be part of the tribe, please subscribe. You know how it works. Give us a thumbs up or a like, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not going to bore you with the details. So let's jump in um, with someone who's going to talk about why form is not what you think it is. Justin, first of all, hello. And secondly, tell people who you are and what you're doing here. Hi there. Well, thanks for having me on here. I'm super excited. Um, my name is Justin Meisner. I am a fitness coach. Um, I tend to say sports performance and joint mobility expert. Um, and we're going to talk a bit about form and how the body works and why form necess isn't necessarily the thing we should be focusing on as much as we do sometimes. Well, before we even get there, backing up to the way you introduce yourself, what was joint mobility and what was the other thing that you're an expert in? You said, said movement. I say it a few different ways each time. So it depends on the iteration <laughs> that I went with. Um, yeah, I have that same problem. Someone says, can you repeat that? I go, uh, no, I have no idea what I just said. Yeah. It came out of my head and it was gone. So, um, well then let's just, before we can kind of get past that, because whatever you said in there is what's leading us to the question at hand, which is, is form important? And if not, why? Yeah. So it is, we should put that in a little like preface or parentheses, right? It is important. No, no. You have to start with the, no, it's not part. Okay. <laughs> It's not important because your body, your, the cells of your body don't have a brain. They oh. don't care what the movement pattern is. They just care about, are they being recruited or not? Interesting. So yes. So that's the significant difference. M many people are paying attention to the, to for, it sounds like what we're delineating is form and function in a way or form and efficiency uh, or form. And I mean, it form is used as a kind of catch all for things that are not necessarily catching what it should be. Exactly. We, we use it to describe something that should be happening. So I usually use the example of like a deadlift. Um, we can do running, we can do any, it doesn't matter what the movement is. Uh, but if we're doing a deadlift, we tend to hinge our hips back, pressure goes towards the heels. We want a neutral back, whatever that means. We want all these things. And then if people do that, then they deadlift. But then the question I usually ask afterwards is, where do you feel it? If mm -hmm. they tell me they feel it in their back, then the form's not useful. And a lot of the times people will tell me, well, I feel it in my glutes, but I kind of feel it in my back cool, then I don't need to worry so much about how it looks. If I can get you to feel only in your glutes and not in your back, then I don't care how it looks because your body doesn't care how it looks. 
Interesting. There's, I mean, there, there are so many, now that's a really interesting point because there are so many times where you look online, I have, I have a fondness lately for watching YouTube videos of fitness fails of just, you know, people mm -hmm. catching other people in the gym, doing things that are just crazy, horrific, hysterical, et cetera. And one of the classics on deadlifting is people who are well, among other things, lifting with their back totally rounded or just like doing anything to get the weight up, even though it looks you know ridiculous. In that situation, um, if they were asked how it feels, it would echo the fact that their form was completely crap. But there are some times where it can look good, but people are still doing something a little off. Exactly. And I think that's something that uh, the fitness world doesn't really talk about much because I don't think they think about it much. We get really focused on if you like take a, a training certification course, you're going to be told this is how a squat looks. This is how a deadlift looks. This is how running looks. This is how posture looks, which is all well and good if our body was completely linear, but it's not, it's dynamic. So the movement patterns we have are always going to deviate every single time we move. Um, there was a study done. I don't remember how long ago this is by Nikolai Bernstein. I don't know if you're familiar with his work on the blacksmith. No, essentially it was a study done showing that every time the blacksmith swung the hammer, the movement pattern of the hammer and that arm was different every single time generally the same, but right. the way the motor units are recruited, it's different every time. And that's what we call kind of these degrees of freedom in a movement pattern. So when someone deadlifts, even if they do it 3000 times, they're all kind of different every single time, the execution is the same. So that's where we can kind of play with that balance of does the four matter probably to some extent, but in a lot of ways, the way I deadlift a barbell or the way I would pick up maybe a moving box there are different things. I'm going to pick them up differently, but I'm still going to use the same recruited muscles, if that makes sense. It does. So, well, ideally, you're going to use the same recruited muscles. I mean, if things deviate yes. too much, that's when things get out of whack and you're starting to feel it in your upper back or your lower back when you should be feeling it in your glutes, your hamstrings. How does this play out in sort of the real world for people? What would they, I mean, we can talk about lifting, we can talk about running, we can talk, we can go whichever direction you like, but where do people start if now, if they're just aware of this idea what's the next thing for them to pay attention to? So I always start with your joints because if we don't have joints that do their job well, then I can't use them well. And so I usually will start when I work with people, I assess their joints and we kind of go through an assessment of the shoulder, their hip and their spine. We can go through all of their joints, but it takes a long time. And most of the time, if I go through those three big ticket joints, I kind of have a good idea of what's going on. So when someone... Yeah. Go so ahead. what do you actually, so for that assessment, what are you having people do? I, you know, for people who are listening or watching, they're uh, immediately thinking, okay, how can I check and see if I'm doing something out of whack or in whack, which is not a phrase until we just made it up. Right. It is now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so like the shoulder and hips are both ball and socket joints. And if that is a, a new term for people, it just means that it's got a ball on one end and there's a socket on the other end. And it technically has 360 degrees of rotation capabilities, technically. <laughs> So when I look at a shoulder, I want to see how well does it rotate? Because primarily speaking, that's what a ball and socket does. Our elbows and our knees, those are hinge joints. So I want to see how well they hinge. For most people's shoulders and hips, they're often really tight. So they almost don't rotate at all. So by definition in my book, then they don't own a hip or a shoulder. And so if I have a hard time holding my arm out and rotating it down with the elbow bent, and I feel tension in my shoulder, it probably means my shoulder has some rotational issues. And if it has rotational issues, then it's going to have some issues that'll compromise any of its movement patterns because it doesn't do its first thing well. And so, um, so that's a great example. So uh, for people who are listening, what you just did to demonstrate is let's start by putting your arm straight out to the side at shoulder height and then bend your elbow. So your hand, so you've got an L shape, if you will, or maybe something else, depending on if you're looking in the mirror or not. So your hand is uh, up 
um, elbows at a 90 degree angle, and then you just rotated your shoulder down. Now for me, I know that if I do it with my left arm, no problem. My right arm, the one I had surgery on, whole different story. Sure. So, so that's you know definitely telling. And, um, and that shows up in my scapula as well for how that does or doesn't move, which I can feel right now as I'm playing with that. Something I've been working on, you know, just 30 years ever since I stopped being a gymnast. Uh, so that's giving you some information about what, or let me ask it, ask it as a different question. When you get that kind of information, what do you do with it next? So I get excited about this stuff because I always look for the tiny details because ultimately the tiny details are probably going to be the things that make or break the difference. Because ultimately, right. if someone has shoulder pain or if they've had surgery, I could just go and say, okay, well, I have exercise routine B or routine A for this type of thing. But most of the time, what people are experiencing is going to be felt differently because the bodies are different and you're experiencing things in a different way. So once I have that information, okay, the shoulder's really tight. Or let's say one shoulder's really loose, one's really tight. Then I need to figure out why it's tight or what's going on in the shoulder. Is it just tight because they're not using it? Is it tight because it has had surgery? Is it tight because some other neurological thing is going on? And then from there, I create a program based around increasing the range of motion and the mobility in that joint so that it has more of what it should have. So it's a shoulder again, essentially. Yeah. So we're analyzing these joints. We're seeing where the movement patterns that should be there are not there. We're finding some way of starting to actually, let's start with that. So you find something that's a little locked up. Obviously there's, or in my mind, there's two ways that could be happening. One is something that isn't flexible enough. The other is something that is either not strong enough or is too strong. Did I miss any? So I would also say there could be something neurological going on. Mm -hmm. So not even the muscle system, but your nervous system could be at play too, as well as your structural bone system as well. Interesting. Talk about the neurological one. That sounds fun. So that's the one that gets really interesting because your nervous system is essentially, I always joke that it's, it's its own person inside you. It's making sure that you don't do anything too stupid. Ultimately you still can do dumb things. We do that all the time. But if you try and do the splits right now and you've never done the splits, you're going to stop at a certain point, not because the muscles physically can't, but because you have basically these checks and balances that know if you go further, the tissue can't handle that load and you'll get injured. This is kind of the way our nervous system checks and balances those positions. If you're looking at it from an anatomy perspective, your um, goalie tendon organs, muscle spindles, they're kind of responsible for watching the pull and stretch of tissue. Right. But when I see that someone can't move, but I'm not feeling the blockage in the tissue, which is kind of a hard thing to explain as well, usually means that I can passively, let's say I can passively bend their arm further than they can move it. That means I know they have some flexibility. They can't move further. So then it's either strength. They need to be stronger to move into that space, right? Or their nervous system doesn't trust them in this space to move into it. So, well, where's it's going to go. So so why might it be that someone's nervous system learns? And I'm putting air quotes around that because it's a weird phrase to say, why would it be that someone, someone's nervous system learns that there's a movement that they couldn't or shouldn't do? Most of the time it's because they've done it before and they've been hurt before. Mm. And so it's protection against the thing. So surgery, sprains, breaks, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. We tend to always have a little bit of that security blanket around the movement after we've like, if you've had surgery on your knee or your shoulder, there's been that momentary space right afterwards where the movement's really sensitive. You're right. very, very, very aware of it. And over time, it sort of goes away, but we also need to spend some time trying to go back into normal movement patterns with it so that we can encourage the nervous system to handle that space again, and ultimately be better at that space so that if it was like a sprain, we just don't get sprained the next time. Right. So one of the things you're talking about, all the neurological stuff reminds me of things that I did with a guy named Tom Hanna, who uh, wrote a book called Somatics. And uh, he was the guy who brought Moshe Feldenkrais over 
to America mm-hmm. about, you know, 40 something years ago, where um, they do some really interesting things where they have you do these movements that basically fake your brain out. Like you don't think you can do them. And there's ways that it's like, I can't describe all of them, but I'll, I'll use an example someone who had a quote frozen shoulder and they couldn't lift it above their head and he had them move in some position and asked them to move their arm. And because it was such an unusual, unusual position that their whole body was in, they were able to move their arm with full range of motion. And then he had them stand up and recognize that they had done that. And literally it's like, how did I do that? Was their expression. And once they realized it was possible, everything else started to shift from there. Yeah. The experience I have with people is their emotions usually can come out too. So like I'll be assessing someone's shoulder and we're going into space that I know they can handle, but they don't think they can handle. The nervous system doesn't think they can handle. And they start to get like anxious. They get a little panicky. I've had people start to like emotionally, some really weird things can happen. That's, that's a really small population of people. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting because sometimes we, I think unconsciously become so identified with certain movement patterns that if you discover there's some whole new way you can move, it could either be really exciting or really terrifying. And, yeah. and some people you know, are more attached to that identity than to the freedom that they just discovered, that they'd rather go back to that familiar identity thing. I think there's so much movement that's locked in with identity um, that I don't know if people talk about that a lot. I, I think of it as the fact that we can identify someone from a hundred yards away by how they're walking. You know, They take two steps and we know who it is. Yeah. You know, that's crazy if you think about it. Yeah. It's interesting how much we put like quirk into movement is usually what I tell people. So when I, when I do running clinics, I always tell people, I'm going to teach you things that are going to help improve your run. But ultimately the way you run is the way you run. We just want to see these traits in that run so that it is efficient and it's safe and it's good. But ultimately we're not robots. We're not all going to run exactly the exact same way. And I'll usually show some videos of people running so we can see here are those markers that I'm looking for when they run. But look at this person, look at this person, look at this person. They're all running different when you look at it from a global perspective. But when you look at the local movement patterns, they're doing the things I want to see good runners do. Well, I, I'm dying to hear what some of those are because the reason that I, I think about this is this is a conversation I had with Nicholas Romanoff, who created what he calls pose method running. Yeah. And one of the things that he, he talks about is that there can be idiosyncratic differences, but the better you get, the more those get kind of removed, the more of those disappear. And if you look at the elite, I'll use runners as an example. They're so much alike. The differences are so, so small that only somebody with really good eyes could see. And if you look, for example, if you do a search on YouTube for Usain Bolt slow motion, Mm -hmm. there's a great video of him running and you look at his form and it's just amazing. But then you look at all the other seven guys in that race and they look exactly the same. You know, there's like tiny little difference how their hand is being held or I mean, itty bitty things. But, you know, by and large for the average person, you can see that they look identical. Exactly. And so most of the time with people, when I tell them that they don't get it because I do it all the time. So I see it all the time. Right. But when we watch people run and usually when I show the videos, the the joke I make is, do we see the difference? And they're like, no, like, okay, but look at this guy's hands. See how he's moving his hands. They're not as big as that guy's hands. Right. It also depends on their speed and those kinds of things too. But I think that's where we got this idea that a movement has to look a very specific way Mm. and it does right. Like running has to be a certain way for it to be running. Right. But if we understand how the body is going to consistently, continually make variable changes to that movement pattern, every single step in my run is going to be a little bit different, which is okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm reminded there was um, one of the world champion runners um, a number of years ago was a guy named Otto Bolton. And Otto, um, he says it was from playing soccer as a kid. His right foot turned out like over 45 degrees. He was a world champion. And people would say, oh, if he would just straighten out his foot. It's like, no, no, no. That's how he runs. Other than the fact that his foot was turned out, Everything else, again, looked identical to the other seven guys in the race. 
Right. And you know, your body's great at finding the path of least resistance. So mm. that can sometimes be to our benefit or to our detriment, right? So when people get really bad posture and they get back pain and those things, that's when we have path of least resistance has become the bad path to follow. And then we're trying to recorrect the path of least resistance back to what it should be. So the natural path of resistance is the right one. That's interesting. Well, let's talk about that from a context of running, because I know there are a lot of people who listen to this who run. So what are some of those, let's call them common factors that are the things that you want to see and some of the things that are deviations from that? Sure. I mean, I think of it like really basic mechanics. If you were to stand up on your feet and stand on one foot, what's a natural thing that's going to happen? You're going to shift your weight to that foot, right? right. Your head's going to shift over that foot. And a lot of people, when they run, they try and keep their head dead center of their body, which then your running is all about your legs. And I find that running is all about your whole body. It's a body movement, mm. right? It's expressed through the legs, but my whole body's participating in the movement. So I want to have my head shifting foot to foot. It's not a big shift. Like you're doing these giant head struts when you run, right? But when you watch people run, you'll see them jet their head out a little bit to the side because they're trying to shift into the space so that they're on top of the foot that they're landing on versus landing on it or what people tend to do fall onto it. And that's where all that pressure goes into the knee and all that stuff we want to avoid. The other thing I can look for too is, is rhythm, right? When people run, I want to see a good rhythm and a good pacing that makes sense for their body size and mechanics. Cause depending on your leg length, you're going to have a different stride length, depending on how right. fast you run, it's going to change those things too. And the last thing that I usually pick out is, can I hear you run? And to what degree do I hear you run? I was just going to ask you about listening. So what do you listen for? What are the things you're hearing? And I asked it, I, I think of it because when I worked with this one sprinting coach, back when I had just gotten back into sprinting, uh, which was 14 years ago when I was 45, he said, you're a really good runner, but you're not a sprinter yet. I can tell from listening. And I said, what? And I had no idea what he was talking about. I now do, and I can hear it, but I'm very curious to hear what you listen for and what you hear. Yeah. I mean, so on the basic level, I'm just listening to like, are you some person who's like making big, loud, like heavy steps when you run? Because then I know your running mechanics are off. I can also listen for the pacing of your running. If I can hear your feet, I can usually hear, do I hear a consistent pattern? Or do I hear something that's off? Because that can also tell me a bit more about like, maybe there's something going on in your left hip. So your left stride is off. Mm -hmm. And now we don't have that nice, consistent pattern that I want to kind of hear. But also again, when we go to speed, the faster I go, the closer to my toes I get. And so when we're starting to sprint, I'm going to hear a lot less because there's less foot on the ground. Like just Mm -hmm. naturally speaking, if you look at big cats, any animals that don't have heels, they've got these big pads. You don't really hear them when they run, which is by their nature and design. We don't have that unless you wear those big cushy nonsense shoes, but even those people all still hear them when they're running. Oh, so dude, I asked them. There was a guy on my, who lived on my block and we lived on this cul-de-sac and I could hear him from half a block away. And it was just like slam, 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 slam. And when I saw him, he was wearing big, thick, maximally padded shoes, which they say, you can't do that in those shoes. And I've heard more people you know, running loudly in those than anything else. Yeah. I, I think it just encourages poor mechanics instead of fixing the problem. So, I mean, with most people, when I do clinics for running, most of the people I work with, they're like, they're in Spartan races, they're older athletes who just want to keep running, or they're people who have no idea how to run. Mm. And so when I start with them, I work with just the basics of like, when I hear you run, I'm going to hear you because you're moving, but I shouldn't be able to pick you out of a crowd, (laughs) right? If I can pick you out of a crowd, that means you're doing something with your mechanics and you're putting all this pressure onto your knees. It's going through your spine. You're falling onto your feet. And I always kind of say, if you're light on your feet, the pressure still goes down, but the momentum is forward, right? Because we're using our glutes and our posterior chain to push us and propel us forward. If people are running and they want to start listening to themselves, what are some of the things that you think they should be listening for that might give them? Before I actually finish that question, I'm going to say, we like to say with zero shoes, especially with our sandals, 
that the sound is one of your coaches. And my favorite thing is a guy who emailed me who said, your sandals make a slapping noise. And I said, no, you're making the slapping noise with our sandals. And he emailed me back a little while later and says, I noticed something that when I started running uphill, they were quiet. I said, no, (laughs) when you were running uphill, you were quiet, but he was really smart. I mean, he was experimenting and and he realized, well, let me see if I can figure out how to keep that quietness when I crest the hill, when I'm not going straight up. And he eventually figured out what the gate pattern was that allowed him, allowed him to do that. So, you know, you can't be silent, silent. You're contacting the ground, even if you're in bare feet. But there's, there's just certain things. One of the things that I listen for, like when I'm on the track and I hear people running, is the scraping sound, like they're, you know, like kicking sand behind them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's not a good one. Um, or that, or it's that, that double tap or like heel strike and then your foot slapping the ground. And then you'll usually hear the scraping thing after that. But what are some of the things that you would, if, if you were giving someone a homework assignment to go listen to themselves running, what are some of the things you'd want them to listen for or play with? So uh, I, used to, I used to be a teacher, so I'm really used to giving really weird metaphors to help people understand things. Okay. Uh, and so one of the ones that I'll use is I want you to sound like you're on a pogo stick. And that's because the way a pogo stick is landing on the ground is momentum is straight down mm-hmm. versus kicking me back or falling forward. And even a pogo stick, when you're jumping on it, they don't make a loud sound when they hit the ground. No. Even if the person's jumping super high up in the air. Now it's because they have compressive force, but so does our foot and our ankle. That's what the Achilles tendon is for. It's what our muscles are for is to create compressive force so we can handle it. So I want them to be able to hear a sound that you hear, but is congruent with where your momentum is going, which is something that you feel as well. I like that one. Cause if you really think about it, when the pogo stick lands, you don't hear the stick landing. You hear the spring compressing and extending. But you yeah. don't really hear the landing and you don't really hear a push off. Yeah. If you really pay attention. That's a great one. So yeah. if someone now, and this is the thing that I'm also curious, I've noticed that some people are just better at playing with different movement patterns. So if they go home, they go for a run and they don't feel that or hear that kind of pogo stick-ish sound that's not the spring compressing, because that would be crazy if you did hear that. Yes. Some people are better at experimenting with different movement patterns to play with those. Do you have any advice for what to do if you hear something that doesn't sound as sort of crisp and clean as that pogo stick? Yeah. I mean, I would start looking at things like how much gait you're using when you run. I think people tend to try and make bigger strides than they can handle. Mm. And so because they're sticking their leg out super far, their torso is not over their leg when they land that foot on the ground, and then they fall towards the leg. And really to get that pogo stick sound, my momentum needs to be over it as I'm landing on it. So you really need to be a pogo stick. You need to be, your foot is the foot is the bottom of the pogo stick. And the rest of you is that spring. And you want to be a, a not, I don't want to use the word stiff spring because that's the wrong impression I'm going for. You don't want to be too, you don't want to be too compliant is the better right. way I want to say it. Yeah. Yeah. You want to like, so, I mean, you want to listen to those things and you want to check. So I used to tell people like when you start running, do a test, pause on a foot and see how easy it is for you to balance oh, when that's you run. Because if I stop on that foot and I lean to the side that my other foot is up in the air on, then I know I'm not shifted over to that side for balance. If I land on that foot and I'm going to fall backwards, then I know I don't have enough forward momentum. And if I land on that foot and almost fall on my face, then I know I have way too much forward momentum. Interesting. And I want to be able to land and kind of stick onto my foot because it's a good balance position. It tells me that my body has shifted the bones of stacked where they kind of should be so that I can land on the foot. 
to then push off and then land on the next foot. I'm playing with that in my head and I don't think I could do it at all. But as a sprinter, I can't think of one stride that I take where I'd be able to stop in a single stride. Yeah. It's, it's an exercise. So it's not a skill set that I would tell someone to get really good at. <laughs> yeah. Right. You'd, so I, I, when I would teach people how to walk, I do the same thing. I'll have them walk for a bit and I'll say pause and they'll pause and I'll say, don't cheat. If they're going to fall, I want them to feel that they're going to fall. So they can tell my walking gait is funky and I need to do something about it. And then I want to be able to make that expression when I run too. I just love the phrase that you just used, which is when I teach walking. So most people don't think that that's something that you would, most people don't think they need to be taught running. They think, well, I right. know how to run. But the idea that you need to teach walking, and you're talking to someone who has a couple of blog posts about how to walk properly. Um, so I'm dying to hear why it is that you find that you're teaching people to walk and then how to then just dive into that for a bit. Yeah. So a lot of the background that I've been going through in terms of my training is focused on locomotive behavior. So basically how we're bipedal animals and how we move forward and how we kind of just move around. If we understand that our bodies are locomotive in their nature, then my exercising should also be congruent to locomotive behavior. So a really complicated way of me saying that there's a certain way that I should walk that's congruent to the way my body functions. And a lot of right. people find a path of least resistance that has nothing to do with natural walking pattern. And I think for a lot of people, it starts with the fact that they think their legs do all the work. And so they're trying to just use their legs to walk forward. They're heavy footed. They're making these big, heavy sounds. Their feet are super far out. They're walking like penguins, whatever you want to describe the walking gait as, but they're doing these patterns and they don't realize that it, it matters that the way I walk is a whole body exercise, just like running is when I walk properly, I feel my whole body engaging in some way, shape or form from my toes up through my shoulders, really. And then people, when I tell them that they're like, that sounds crazy. And then I teach them and they go, man, the way I used to walk, that was crazy. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. then we can start running. Then we can start lunging. Then we can start deadlifting because they understand how those translate to their behavior. Well, I, I think you, you just kind of hinted at it. You know, one of the things that I notice with people walking is most people don't use their butts. They don't use their hamstrings. These are two of the biggest muscles in your body. They're called prime movers for a reason. Right. People don't use them. And I just wonder how much of that is just totally, you know, backing up to that thing of recognizing someone by their walk and the way we get some of those, I don't know how much of it is genetic and how much of it is just imitating our parents unconsciously or something like that, or things like I, I was an all-American gymnast way back when, and I, I half jokingly say I was a gymnast from the time I was 12 to the time I was 30. And then I've spent the next 30 years getting the gymnast out of my body. So some of it was just, you know, when I was going through my formative years, developing certain movement patterns that were ideal for gymnastics, not ideal for pretty much anything else. But I wonder how, mu how much of it is societal or social because you go to other countries and people walk differently. Yeah. Um, I definitely think there's both things matter, right? So everyone has a different hip structure. The way the, the ball and socket joint sits for someone's hip will give a terminal mobility position. That's why I tell people mm -hmm. like, don't worry if you can't sit in a squat all the way down with your butt on the ground, because you may just genetically not be able to. And that's not because you're wrong. It's just bodies are different. Right. And if that's different, then that's going to change the way my gait's going to be too. And the way my pattern is going to be. So part of it, I think is gait from that. The other part I definitely think is from parents, because if you watch little kids when they first start to walk, they kind of do it right. Unless the parents put on really thick shoes, then the kids lose it because they can't feel their feet anymore. Right. But you watch little kids walk and you even watch them when they run, their mechanics are right. They're just too big and all over the place. Yeah. And the idea is as they get older, they hone in, but then they watch us move and they realize, oh, you don't do any of that. I'll just do what I see my parents do. And then we start that pattern that way. 
Yeah, that unconscious imitation thing is really fascinating because it makes no, I mean, you do it to fit in, you do it to be recognized, you do it to be part of your family, your clan. Um, but at the same time, it's completely nuts because so much of what you're doing is undeniably, I mean, how could it feel right if you paid attention to it? But of course, you're at that age, you can't pay attention to it. Exactly. And, and you just, right, it's that age where we don't really know better, right? Yeah. We just follow what we see. And then I think a lot of it too is, so we, we have this position that people talk about called the anatomically correct position, which has nothing to do with posture. It was just so that we could easily see the body parts, but we somehow morph this anatomically correct position to mean that's how I'm supposed to look when I do things, but that's not what that was really for. It's not that straight spine isn't bad. It's just what I tell people is it's not the posture. There's not a specific posture that's bad for you. It's the one that you do all the time. It's going to be the one that's going to make the most problems. And that's going to go for any posture, the one that we think looks good and the one we don't think looks good. So I always tell people like, like variate what you do. Mm. When I walk, I'll see other people walk. You'll see people have that little bit of strut. You'll see people who walk, like I said, that they're penguins. Some that walk like they're a robot. Some that walk like they don't know how the rest of their body is connected to their legs. Right. And I only start by trying to explain that when you're walking, your torso drives movement and your limbs are expressing expressors of that movement. So whether that's throwing a baseball, walking, running, pushing, whatever the thing is, I'm always going to be thinking about my torso as kind of the engine starting point. And those limbs are the, are the extensors. They're the ones that are going to express that movement. Well, and we, if we go back to the thing of little kids and I love watching kids walk and run uh, for them, of course, it, it, the thing that is the initiator of the movement is their giant head, which right. you know, that thing leans and they just have to try to follow. <laughs> and, right. Um, when I teach barefoot running to people, it's one of the things that I love to do is we go out in a park and I go, just let your arms kind of dangle and don't worry about it. And just lean your head and try to catch up your head, but don't let it. Like the moment you feel like you're catching up, move your head in a different direction and do it until you don't care that there's other people watching you. Because by the way, they're not, they don't care. Right. About you. <laughs> but right. um, God, we were on a track recently. It was a bunch of little kids, like, you know, three to five years old. And not only did they have perfect form, but they had this look on their face when they ran that you rarely see with adults. Um, I think it's called smiling. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. I always tell people when I, when I do a running clinic, like, oh, I would, but I hate running. I'm like, so you probably should go. You probably hate it because you can't do it. Yeah. Not because you hate the actual effort. Some people don't like exercise. I get that. But most people that I have when they, they learn to run or do these things properly, they're like, oh, well, that's not so bad. Or when I run downhill, my knee doesn't hurt. Well, yeah, because you're not abusing it. You're actually just using it. So now the physical feeling is good. So the emotional feeling is good. Yeah. Yeah. So we gave some ideas for people to, what to pay attention to when they're running. Can you think of anything for people to pay attention to when they're walking? I mean, I would kind of use some of the same things. I don't want my foot to just fall onto the ground, but I also tell people like, think about what you're doing. Like, are you sticking your leg all the way out in front, letting it land on the ground and then letting your body shift to the foot on the ground? Or are you landing your foot on the ground as your body is over that foot on the ground? And I always say, if you want to see how well people walk, watch them walk on a sidewalk they don't know has ice on it. <laughs> because yeah, yeah, that's good. The person that's going to stay mostly balanced is probably the person who's landing on their foot properly. The one who comically slings their feet up into the air and lands on their back is probably the person who stuck their foot out and then tried to put pressure on it. But the pressure isn't down. It's now at an angle, which is going to, of course, not be so great on a smooth surface like ice. Or if they slip and fall towards their face, I know I put too much forward right? and I'm pulling myself back. There's a, there's a thing that I found myself doing recently, uh, watching the Olympic trials. I don't know when this conversation is going to air, but I hope people get the opportunity to watch 
the Olympics just to watch how people walk like before and after every event in different sports. Yeah. Because it's really interesting to watch. And I tried to imitate some of them just because you watch them and go, how are they doing that? That looks so weird. And some of them I like can't do to save my life. My all-time favorite, look, again, I was a gymnast. I can't walk like a female gymnast. There's a thing they do that I, I can't even describe it. It's just such an unusual way of moving. And then if you look at some of the power lifters, again, like I have no idea how they're moving the way they are. And the reason that I'm curious about trying to imitate it is I also like one of the suggestions I like to give people is if you feel like you're doing it wrong, try to exaggerate the wrongness because right. that will bring that to your awareness. Right. And so usually what I'll do is I'll over-exaggerate the rightness <laughs> so that they, one, they usually look ridiculous walking. Um, when I do a running clinic, we do this thing called raptor runs. Yeah. So just imagine like Jurassic Park Raptor and seeing how they run and imagine a human kind of doing something similar. The reason why we do it though, is because it encourages more proper mechanics. Everyone feels silly doing it, but afterwards I'm like, did you feel that? Most people mm -hmm. will say, okay, I kind of get it. Now I want you to run with that mindset, but don't be so cartoonish about it. Pull it back to a more natural pattern. Oh, I love um, it. And we'll do the same thing when we walk, we usually have them hold like a PVC pipe or something so they can feel this kind of shift through their torso as they're moving. And I'll have them do it really big. And I say, I want you to make it so big that you can feel your weight is fully on your left foot and then fully leaves and goes to your right foot. And I want you to feel like that the steps themselves weren't an effort to move forward. They just kind of moved forward mm -hmm. because then when I can feel that, just like you were describing with the frozen shoulder, if I can help someone feel it, then I know they can handle it on their own. And right. sometimes we have to do things that show them that they can handle it and then they can go and handle it out fine. I love it. Are there any other sort of like key movement patterns? And we've talked about sort of the hinging thing with deadlifting. We've talked about running. We've talked about walking. Is there anything else that we want to touch on that people that you notice in people that's kind of a biggie? I mean, those are three big ones. Yeah. I mean, I just try and think about what is popular in the exercise world right now. And what's kind of turning uh, the popular thing is what we call like the functional quote unquote exercises, because they're I guess, different somehow. I, I love that you put air quotes around functional because um, I can't think of anything that's less functional than some of those movements, the way they were done. I was on a panel discussion, actually. It was actually talking about uh, sort of natural movement things like you know going out and playing in trees and doing whatever. I said, well, look, let's call it what it is. No one's walking down to the river and picking up stones and bringing them back to build a house. Nobody is climbing trees to get the berries. Nobody is doing these things that were the natural things. They're all artifice in some way. And especially if it's a functional fitness thing, and I'm probably pissing off some people who do functional fitness or teach it, but you know, so much of the functional fitness came from developing machines to just allow you to do different movement patterns that don't really simulate the original movement patterns. Yeah. Um, I usually tell people that a squat is just a made up exercise for the fact that you don't do things you used to do as a human yeah. anymore. Yeah. And that's, that's true for any exercise. They're all made up pieces of nonsense. They're all in terms of how old they are. They're not that old, technically speaking, for how long humans have been around and been moving, but we've been doing squat-based things, right? Yeah. It's just the way I squat to go like pick up a stone, the way I'm going to squat to be prepared to hunt, the way I squat when I'm with my family, they're all different expressions of the same mechanics. Right. And that's where I start to play with this idea that like the form isn't necessarily what's important. It's what's the goal and what's the function. Mm. And so if I'm doing an exercise, I can make any exercise more beneficial than it actually is, as long as I understand why am I pushing this thing over my head? What's the translatable thing for a human for this? Right. Okay. Now I get it. Now I can apply that to the exercise. So it's not static, sterile, lifting a clean, balanced weight. I can start applying that to 
challenging it. So like if I do a deadlift, maybe I should stand facing forward, but twist to the side and try and deadlift a little bit at an angle, not because that's the right way to deadlift, but because I should probably know how to deadlift outside of this clean little box that I get at the gym. If you want to watch people freak out, I can't remember what it's called. You'll probably know. Um, it's the deadlift where you straddle the bar and you're at an angle. Yeah. I know what you're talking about, but I can't think of the name. Yeah. So for people to describe it, just imagine that you're, that you're standing in front of a bar, you're going to deadlift it and you spread your legs wide. And then you just take one foot and put it on the other side of the bar. <clears throat> so you're close to the bar, then twist your body just enough so you can just grab the bar with your hands straight below you. And so it, it's kind of like you're almost, it's almost like you're doing like a weird lungy kind of something movement to do it. It looks completely goofy. Um, yeah. And is so fascinating to do. And people will think that you're doing something wrong and they will come up and correct you. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That's well, my favorite part. The amount of times that like, um, so I always experiment with movements because I don't really care about the exercise. I care about what am I trying to accomplish with this? Yeah. Um, so I really like experimenting with things that we may always like our barbell. I don't really deadlift a lot because I just don't think it's translates as cleanly to picking up anything else because it's this nice, clean, easy handling bar. It's got even weight distribution. It's big and long. It's shiny. It makes sense for Olympic lifting and for sport and for certain styles of training, but I'd rather deadlift. Like, let me go see if I can pick up that big stump. Let me go see if I can pick up that weird, awkward looking chair. Can I deadlift it? Right. Because if I have more variety of how I deadlift, then I've got a thousand ways to deadlift that are all using the same mechanics. And I have a, probably a higher probability of doing it better and safer than the person who's only ever picked up the same type of thing a thousand times. I think what you're describing though, runs so contrary to the way human beings like to think, which is, you know, we want it to be simple. We want to just know how do I get from here to there? And then we, we try to look to somebody who we think has gotten there and try to imitate them. It's backing up to imitating movement. Um, I mean, the notion that you would have to come up with some new way of deadlifting every time you decided to do some exercise is so contrary to the way humans are wired. That's, that's just a fascinating creative process that you're going through that I, I know for some people, they would just find it terrifying because they wouldn't think they know what to do. But I also imagine that after trying it for a little while, it could get very exciting because you have more ranges of motion, more, more uh, um, degrees of freedom, more things to play with and try. Yeah. And ultimately what I tell people is at the beginning, it is a little bit like you have to start taking those baby steps to trust your body. Mm -hmm. uh, it's more about what I feel. And that's the thing that I'm trying to get better at coaching people. When I work with clients and athletes and whoever I'm working with that, I want you to be able to see what something looks like, but I want you to be able to feel what you're supposed to feel, because if you can feel it, the intent behind it is the important thing. So mm -hmm. ultimately I can deadlift the thing a million different ways. I just need to make sure that I always use my glutes and my hamstrings. The rest right. of it just doesn't matter. As long as I still use that part of my chain. Right. And then when we get there, it's a lot easier for the person to realize, okay, so if I want to like lift up a log press, I know how to deadlift it because it's different than a barbell, but I'm still using the same muscles. So I just need to know how I can feel those when I lift it. And then I can go and do the same with a box. I can do the same with a table. I can do the same with a person. It doesn't matter as long as I understand that chain really well. That, I wonder, um, it made me think of like, if I was going to turn that into a workout, I would take a bar and put, you know, cause you need to have something to give you some bit of resistance, but like the barest amount that I could think of. Um, and then literally just often probably having to go in slow motion to see what it's like to lift that relatively lightweight thing, just enough to give you a little feedback in as many different ways as I can, just to see what it's like and see which ones I do like and which ones I don't like. And I would be especially curious about the ones that I don't like. Yeah. It's, 
it's interesting to do that because you'll, again, your body's always at full expression. If you're doing a heavy deadlift, you're going to be using your core. You're going to be using your lats. You're going to be using your whole body to lift this thing. Right. So it's not just your chain. It's just, those are in support of the primary movers of that exercise. So as you go and let's say maybe twist a little bit to your right to do your deadlift, things that'll change. Well, I'm more to my right side. That probably means I'm going to use more of my right side. So I'm going to probably feel more of my right glute. I'm going to probably feel more of my right lat. I'm going to feel more of my right shoulder to support the weight as I lift it up in this position. And then I might say, okay, I might pick it up in my right side. Can I go to my left and can I put it down on my left side mm. and then do the same on the other way or stagger the feet? Or can I be, what, what kind of position can I put myself in? That's not like a yoga crazy position, but like, I want to be in some realm of like, you know, safety and, and I don't want to tell people to go out yeah. there and, yeah, start, yeah. you know, scaring the world with exercises, but I think we shouldn't be afraid to see a movement that we may don't understand. And rather than say, well, that's just bad for your back. I usually tell them, I say, well, it's maybe bad for your back, but my <laughs> back's fine when I do it. But I understand why people feel that way when they see it. You know, one of the things that's related to this, it just, I just popped into my head from a conversation I had recently is that there's these things that people have done to make, to, to make adaptations based on their own physiology, their own morphology that have become, boy, I can't think of the word. I'll just do the example and hopefully you'll think of the word. I've talked to a bunch of people who are going to CrossFit or they're going to certain gyms where they're doing certain kinds of powerlifting moves or Olympic lifting moves, and they think that they need to be wearing lifting shoes. And I say, why? And they go, well, they have a hard sole. It's like, you know, wooden sole. I said, so it's the floor. They go, yeah. So it's the floor, but it's elevating your heel. Yeah. Well, why do you think someone came up with that? And they're like, I don't know. So, well, it's pretty easy. Um, Their femur was probably long. So they had a hard time squatting with their foot flat on the ground. So they took the floor and changed the angle of the floor. And now everyone thinks they need to wear lifting shoes because that's what, you know, that guy did. Um, So again, I don't know what the word is when that gets, you know, when it becomes common wisdom or whatever, whatever that is, but it's, but again, I see so many of these things that are clearly somebody came up with some way of doing something for them. And now everyone just copies it. Exactly. I mean, it's like with diet nutrition, right? Someone did a diet and it worked for them. So now everyone thinks it works for everybody and it doesn't. And the same is true for those kinds of things. So I always tell people that it's not that a a shoe with a cushion on it is 100% the wrong thing, but the intent behind why it was created in the first place is completely lost. And the reason for it, I think has been outproven with the function of the foot, right? Oh, wait, it's even better. Um, I'm betting you actually don't know why uh, shoes have big, thick padded elevated heels. Tell me why you think it is. This is a well, so this is what, so again, what I think it's because people are running heel toe, they're yeah. hurting their knees and their shin splints. Yeah. They put a big cushion on the heel. Yeah. Solves the problem. Yeah. It's even better than that. Ready? So this is uh, back in the day, um, Bill Bowerman at Nike was getting all these runners who were getting Achilles tendonitis and he was sharing an office with some sports podiatrists. They might've been orthopedic podiatrists. I never remember which is which. Uh, and he said, you know, what do you recommend? And they said, well, clearly uh, these runners, they have been wearing higher heel dress shoes. So their Achilles have shortened. So they need a higher heel running shoe to accommodate that. And that's when they came up with a wedged heel. Cut to 30 years later, when one of these doctors was at a track meet with a friend of mine. And my friend says, you know, this idea that you guys came up with, the big wedged heel has become ubiquitous. It's in every athletic shoe ever made since this idea took off um, when Nike did it because it was unusual and different, not because it was necessarily better. He said, what do you think about that? And this doctor said, biggest mistake we ever made. He said, we, we'd had no evidence for this Achilles shortening idea. We were seeing everything through a prosthetic meeting lens. And that was just what we came up with, what we really didn't know. And we see what the effect has been now. And yeah, 
biggest mistake we ever made. Yeah, it's fascinating. Who knew? Right? Yeah. And not surprisingly, um, Nike doesn't like it when they talk to people. Those right. Weird, right? <laughs> I, I have one. I have one friend who comment used to work for Nike. He commented about something in an article about a Nike product. He hasn't worked for them for quite a long time, and he still got a call from their lawyer saying, uh, "Yes, we know that we are not contractually obligated to do anything with her or without our company. But if you say another word, we're going to sue the living crap out of you." It's like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm paraphrasing only slightly. Right. So anyway, in the last couple of minutes that we have, this has been totally fascinating. I just love the basic idea that we've really taken a, a deep dive into of just using your attention and awareness to play, pay attention to the different ways you're moving because of the reasons that you're doing it more than for you know the specific, even necessarily the specific outcome that you're thinking of, getting stronger or getting faster or getting whatever, but you know, breaking it down in a way to really figure out what the optimal way of exploring that movement is. I, I just think that's totally interesting. And it really, and look, admittedly, lately, um, post-COVID or what seems to be post-COVID, as I've been getting back on the track and doing my running, I've been really experimenting with what are the things that I want to do to get stronger in the ways that I know I need to get stronger as I'm becoming older and that's fading away slightly. Um, and it's really given me a lot to think about for the stuff that I want to do and like doing. Even, even with machines, I saw this one exercise there's a guy on a um, on a Roman chair, which for people who don't know, it's just a basically a 45 degree angle thing that you lean against and you can bend your, bend your hips. But he did something on a Roman chair I've never seen before. He spread his legs wide and turned his toes out, and it's like it was a whole different movement than if you just have your toes pointing forward, legs close together, and just starting to experiment with these things to see what's really working for whatever your goal is. Uh, it's got, it's actually got me really excited to go play in my home gym tonight. Yeah. I think um, to me, the word that I use all the time is intent, right? It's mm -hmm. always back to what's the intent, what's the goal, and does this line up with the intent? And so if people understand how to move their bodies well, which I think is the biggest task is just getting really aware of how to articulate the muscles and the tissue. When someone says like, well, my left glute doesn't fire. I'm like, cool, go push my car up a hill. I guarantee you it'll fire. <laughs> you just don't know how to do it anymore. We Did just lost a Sorry, did you ever hear? I, I don't know if you're Joe Rogan. Someone asked him to describe fighting, and he mm -hmm. has this great line. He says, "Fighting is the art of using your muscles to throw your bones at people." <laughs> uh, that's good. <laughs> that's brilliant. Um, yeah, you know, the, well, the glute firing thing—that one of my favorite things is I just you know stick my finger in their butt and go just make that not so annoying, and they have to tighten their glute to do that, and it's like right. that's firing. Now you know. Yep. You, you can do it. Surprise. Yeah. The amount of times I'll bring that kind of thing up or I'll say, well, if it didn't work, you wouldn't be here right now because yeah. there'd be a lot of other things stopping you and we'd have to go over those things. But to your point though, I mean, it is very doable to decondition something or to get used to not using it efficiently or effectively or as, or, or as fully as possible. Like when I'm uh, working with people about walking, backing up to that one, I'll have them um, like have one foot on the ground, lift the other foot, just like a half an inch off the ground and say, now just move, don't do anything with the leg that's off the ground and move forward. And basically they push their, their grounded leg back, like they're skaters. And I go, yeah, you can only do that by using your glutes. Yeah. And, and they go, Oh, and if you just repeat that one leg to the other, you'll look like Frankenstein's monster for a few minutes. And then you just even it out. And suddenly you're using your legs correctly. Right. Well, and even to that, like the way we push things away from us is with the front of our body. So a push up uses yeah. pecs, biceps, that sort of thing. 
If I want to pull things to me, I use the backside of my body, which yep. is the same thing for my legs. If I want to push quads, if I want to walk, run, move in a forward momentum, it's the backside of my body that does the work. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's and great. When we, when we understand that, then it's like, again, if I understand what my muscles do, we don't need to have these PhDs as normal people to understand the body. But if I understand the task and what my muscles are for, then I know, okay, if I'm going to lift up this box and put it up higher, okay, well, lifting it's using my legs, getting up over there is going to use my shoulders, my back and my core. And then I just know, okay, well, I know how to use those. So I'll just go lift up the box. And that's what we kind of do with walking. We get to the point where it's like, well, now, you know, just go walk. Right. I love it. So um, if people want to, this has been super, super fun. If people want to find out more about this, to dive into this, I don't know why I've used the phrase dive into 500 times in this chat, but it's the one I'm using today. Apparently Uh, if people want to find out more about what you're doing and take a deeper dive into it, how can they do that? So I live here in Idaho. I have a website, the woadwarrior.com. The roadwarrior.com. Uh, Warrior. Sorry. W-O-A-D. It's a, it's a Celtic term. My apologies. No worries. Uh, that was, no, I, I was just doing it with the inverse of a, of a weird list. So, um, and I knew it too, which I don't know why I said it wrong when I said it. So W-O-A-D warrior.com. Yep. Um, or they can find me on Instagram, which is what I use a bit more these days. Uh, innate.strength. Very sweet. Um, and when they go to either of those places, what will they find? Uh, my website, they'll find guy who's focused on making you fight dragons, not literally, but it's, I'm all about fitness for anything. So you can do anything. I think it's a sad state of affairs that you have to qualify that with not literally. Yeah. There are no, no literal dragons to be found on your website um, right. and on your Instagram. So my Instagram is where I do a lot of informational and educational stuff. So right now I've been focusing on tips for squats. So patterns oh. that I want to see to make a squat better but still focus on the idea that it's not about my form. It's about what's the task and can I make the task happen? Oh, I like it. Um, squatting is one I think that is so um, important and so misunderstood and so full of mythology and propaganda and fear and terror and uh, you know all manner of things. I, it, it, it makes me smile. My dad, who was not physically active at all up until the time he died when he was uh, in his 80s, um, the two things he was kind of most proud of, he could put, get his legs into a lotus position and he could squat. I'm not like, you know, putting a barbell, just like, you know, feet flat on the ground, right? But, but touching the ground practically. And he was just so proud of that. And I enjoy thinking about that. Yeah. I think the squats, ultimately all exercise, I always joke, we're just picking stuff up and putting stuff back down. That's what most of what people do. <laughs> so we don't need to yeah. overcomplicate this thing. Yeah. And when people squat, they're like, well, I want to do it right. And I'll usually jokingly say, then just do it right. Like, don't overthink it. Your body will probably want to do it right. Mm -hmm. It's you thinking about it. That's going to make you do it wrong. Unless Mm -hmm. you've never thought about it, in which case then they have no mechanic um, motor unit recruitment to understand what they're going to do. But then they, well, then they just need to slow it down. And again, you know, the, the awareness thing I think is, is, is so critical because if you slow it down, if you feel like you don't know how to do it and you don't force yourself too much, slow it down, use a lightweight or no load, no load at all, and just pay attention you're developing that skill of being able to pay attention, that proprioceptive skill, which is so underused um, in our daily life. Yeah. I always tell people, if you really want to get good at an exercise, learn to do one rep over the course of 60 seconds, and you'll be the best at that exercise because you spent so much time in every tiny little aspect of it. Every little movement. Yeah. Boy, you just gave me a flashback. I used to do 60 second pull-ups and um, they're utterly miserable and wonderful at the exact same time. Yes. (laughs) Yes. They're quite the experience. 
Yeah. It's, it's, there's like three different points where you th- find yourself going, what am I doing? And then you yeah. just keep <laughs> right. You're like, why did I start this? But now I can't yeah. stop. Like, exactly. This is a really horrible idea that I love. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've never thought to do that with, with certain exercises just because they seem like they'd be too terrifying. But that's only because I have this tendency, and maybe it's just a sprinter's tendency to do you know a little too much too soon just to try to prove a point, especially sure. now that I'm 59. You know, if I can't do stuff like a 39 year old, it makes me very unhappy. I was literally, <laughs> I was looking at this workout from 1912 earlier and it was saying only, you know, elite competitive athletes can do this one. And I'm going, I got to do that. <laughs> right. I, that's you sold. <laughs> yeah. You talked me right in. I'm going to try that one. Not the one two stages earlier. That's probably what I should be doing at least first until I see if I can do the, the, the last one. But no, I, I just want to try that last one. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's in fact, that's actually been the hardest thing for me about getting older is listening to those things in my head where it says, yeah, you can just do that and just ignoring it or taking that as like as a sprinter, I got good at knowing that when I have the thought, all right, I'll just do one more. That's my time to leave the track. But there's so many domains in my life where I don't have that oh, skill yet to walk away and hopefully yeah. I'll get Hopefully I'll get smart. And honestly, this conversation has given me a lot to play with where I can be smarter and still have that same kind of fun that I'm looking for by you know doing the best I can. Yeah. I think you can definitely still explore movement. It just, as we age, it changes how the exploration is, right? And so it's exciting in the sense that it's new exploration, right? Because mm-hmm. there's things yeah. you could do and now you can't. So now you get to find, well, what now can I do? Yes. Yeah. And, and that, I mean, look, I love squatting heavy weights. I love deadlifting heavy weights. I've also got a broken spine and it's a bad idea. Finding the things that to do instead that are similarly satisfying is actually a really interesting exploration. Um, and I will confess, I've got one, I bought one machine explicitly for that. It's a reverse hyperextension. And I love that machine yeah. because it gives me those things that I was looking for from squatting without having to you know, put my spine in a compromised position. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I do enjoy fitness tools because people always ask me like, so do you never use like machines? Well, I don't own any, so they're expensive, right? So I don't use them, but can you use them for cool things? Definitely, like there's really cool things you can do with anything. Like yeah. if you don't have stuff at home, like if you can't afford a home gym, great. I guarantee you can find a log somewhere. You can find a rock. Totally. You probably got boxes in your garage you need to clean out. Like go do stuff and you'll find things that'll be exercise. Yeah. Yeah. And by, and, and by the way, I mean, post COVID um, I, there's, I think, you know, I knew guys who owned a store selling fitness equipment and they couldn't keep stuff in stock. I'm predicting in six months, there's going to be a deluge of stuff on Craigslist for pennies on the dollar. Yes. <laughs> and then I will buy them. Exactly. You read my mind. <laughs> so enjoy. Well, dude, this has been a total, total pleasure. Um, I just want to thank you once again. I hope people do come and check out what you're doing because there's obviously lots of ways that people can benefit and keep me posted about that. And let me just sign off for Anything last before I do the sign off? No, I mean, as always, I I always tell people like your body's capable of doing way more than you think it is. Just be ready to explore those things and not afraid to try new things. Brilliant. So for everyone else, thank you again. Um, If you want to find out previous episodes, go again to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. If you have any questions or recommendations, people you think should be on the show, or if you just want to tell me that you think I have my head somewhat firmly placed up my butt or anything in between, I don't care. If you want to talk, drop me an email, move at jointhemovementmovement.com. What else? You know, when you get to that site, you'll find all the previous episodes, the places you can engage, the ways you can give us a thumbs up or a like or subscribe or hit the bell button, the bell icon on YouTube to find out about upcoming or find out about new episodes. Uh, You can opt in to find out about upcoming episodes. I will learn how to speak before the next time I do this. And uh, I guess most importantly, just go out and have fun and live life feet first.